Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Sometimes as a podcast host, things happen that you're not proud of. This is one of those things. I had a fantastic conversation with Khaled Keith Perry back in February, seven months ago, uh, right as I was in the thick of spring semester, things were getting kind of busy and uh, I don't know, the vaccines were getting rolled out and I just it fell through the cracks. Somehow I lost track of the file or the session. I just forgot it was there. I'm not sure what happened, but that's why it's coming out seven months later instead of, you know, maybe two months later, which at that time was about how far ahead I was on things. So that does not mean that it's not, that it's a conversation that wasn't worth airing. That's not what's going on. Uh, I always intended to air it. It was a great conversation. I just I don't know what happened, but it did happen. And so here it is, better late than never. But I say that in case there are references to things that sound like they might have been happening in February, in which case that is exactly when they were happening. Um, but I intended to talk with Khaled about this idea of theopoetics, which is really, as I understand it, an alternative to theology. It's like a different way of approaching these questions. Um, it's maybe less less about knowledge and more about aesthetics. But before we ended up getting to theopoetics, 
we spend a good amount of time on Khaled's Quaker faith, uh, issues of justice, um, issues of following Jesus, his life and ministry and teachings. Uh, and so I think that it turned out to be an even more kind of wide ranging um, conversation than I initially anticipated. I really enjoyed it. I think you guys will enjoy it as well. So let's get into my conversation with Khaled. Khaled Keith Perry, man, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Uh, I'm excited because I don't really know much about this topic. And so this is truly a, you know, listen to me, learn live situation here. And uh, that is uh, probably not the norm here. You know, I'm, I'm not an expert as much as most of my guests are on whatever they're talking about, but I usually come with more built-in knowledge than I am today. And so I'm excited about that personally. Okay. And you have written a, a fantastic sort of introductory book about this topic, about theopoetics. And so you're the guy to talk to, and I'm excited. But before we get into theopoetics, I just want to get a little bit of your own story of coming to Christianity. I understand it's a little different than uh, many other people we talk to and certainly than my own. So can you give us the basics there? Yeah, I mean, there's there's two different ways to kind of tell that story. I don't mind doing uh, both of them briefly. Uh, one is kind of very personal in the sense that I, so I was raised outside of the church, uh, outside of any kind of religious upbringing. And the general frame as a youth was that um, you can be good without, quote, those people. And so it was like entirely an ethical read, right? Which is that the point of the church is to be good. If you can be good without them, the church is a waste. And it really was framed as waste, right? There's nothing wrong with the church, but like you don't need it. Why would you bother? And yeah. I actually think that the, I, the reason I share that story is because I think it, to some degree, it really frames like how I ended up doing the kind of work that we'll talk about later, which is I actually agree with my mom. If the church is just about ethics, it is a waste. Hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, she certainly didn't intend for what happened to happen. <laughs> but I, I mean, a lot of my work has been rep grappling with the if it's not just ethical, what are we talking about? What does it mean to be in this body, which is not just about the doing the right thing, but seeing a certain way, being part of a community, having a lens through which we see the world? So I came to my adult years not being part of a um, of any religious community and really feeling very opposed to it. I was part of, you know, like, you know, college atheist groups and things like that, essentially trying to show everyone what a waste of time they were doing. <laughs> and I wasn't, you know, a huge jerk about it, you know, uh, but I, I was pretty clear on my jam. Uh, and then I had, you know, a pretty low part in my life, depressed and involved in a number of unsavory uh, activities and ended up by kind of providence or um, chance, depending on uh, your your understanding of the agency of God, <laughs> getting involved um, with the religious society of friends, what most folks know as Quakers. And if you know any Quakers, especially of the kind of progressive, politically progressive or moderate stream who are involved in activism, which is kind of how I got plugged into them, uh, they, they tend to be, although they're not, they're not always, they tend to be more like universalist in the sense that they're not necessarily Christian. They're kind of spiritual, but they tend to be kind of like Unitarian Universalists oftentimes. And that was me, too. The reason I ended up there is because there wasn't a particular thing you needed to believe or say or do. And right. so I came into faith because this tradition didn't require me to do a thing. 
So that's my first story. How did I yeah. end up in the faith? Because there was a tradition that didn't have requirements. Yeah. How did I become a Christian? Because I began to deepen in a faith. And when I recognized its history, I said, oh, what I'm digging into is the gospel. And mm-hmm. so as I began to spend more and more time in, in our own denominations, histories and texts and journals, like written journals, like the stories of people, not like academic journals, I became clearer and clearer that like if I wanted to speak with a, a authority in the voice of the tradition, that that what I was doing was speaking in a Christian voice and until it became clear that that was my voice too. And so I fell backwards into it because of a desire to deepen in my, my home, my spiritual home. And I often tell the story that if the me now welcomed the, you know, 23 year old me into the, the Quaker meeting house where I first came to friends, that young man would have walked away. Because I now sound like what I was trying to avoid when I was a young man. And um, I think that's really important to recognize is that those are both true and they both like live within me. But that's so interesting of a way to frame this because what theopoetics kind of does is it, it really attempts to shed a lot of that dogmatism that other approaches to Christian thought inevitably carry with them. And so it is funny to me that like, that those are intention, right? You, the thing that you're advocating for, this world that you're heavily involved in, is a kind of an anti-dogmatic strain of Christianity. And at the same time, you still would sound enough like a dogmatic Christian to your 23-year-old self that you would have pieced out. Mm, oh, I, I like sure. that. That that shows the the shades of gray. That it's yep. not like just a a team switch, and then the whole thing is solved, basically. Yeah, no, uh, actually, it's really important to me to recognize that internal tension. Um, one one of the things I say a lot about theopoetics when I'm talking about it kind of in technical settings like this explicitly is that whenever something appears to be a monolith, like whenever something seems to be like a thing, poke at it, prod at it, because it probably contains more than one thing. And, you know, Mm -hmm. when I teach, for example, one of the things I'll say, you know, in in moderate or liberal spaces, like if you're still using the word evangelical and think that that means one thing, you've missed what's happened in the world in the last 30 years. Right. So even a category like what does it mean to be evangelical? It gets needs to be taken apart because it doesn't mean what we think it means. And even if you're evangelical using that word, right? <laughs> well, I think maybe especially if you're evangelical maybe especially. using that word. So yeah. I, I think about about that a lot. So what that means, for example, Dan, is like even the concept of what a theopoetics conversation is, is itself intention, right? So, you know, you framed what I'm talking about as kind of oppositional to dogma. I don't actually think of it that way. I think without dogma, what I do couldn't exist. Hmm. Because everything's in conversation, right? It's dialectic. So what theopoetics is, is it's always going to be swinging one way or the other in conversation with a thing. I often think about theopoetics as operating as kind of like an echo or a conversation partner to what is going on. And so if you don't have that first thing going on, what am I doing? Right. I need something to, to work with. Yeah, that's really interesting. I want to ask you one more sort of contextual question before we get into uh, the historical context of theopoetics. And that is that you mentioned like diving deeper into the gospel. And I just think it'd be cool to hear from you to kind of place you in our own minds in a helpful way. Like, what is the gospel to you? Like, do you have, I know that's kind of a big question sometimes, but do you have a a sort of a ready-made answer to that? 
Yeah. So the kind of like two responses that are related. The gospel is the story of the hope of God in the world. And one of the places we hear that story is in the gospels according to the gospel writers, right? And so we have the, those those gospels, which are just versions of the story of God's hope in the world. And where do we see that? We see that in the life of Jesus. That's a story of God's hope for the world incarnated in this man, Jesus. But I don't say that the gospel is the story of Jesus because it's bigger than that. It's mm-hmm. it's God's whole hope for the world through the, the spirit in the world now. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the ongoing story of God's hope for us in, in what my tradition we might call the inbreaking reign of God. The ways in which God enters into this moment and says, let me for a moment remind you of what it would look like when we see the world without a temple, right? In the new Jerusalem, when we see the possibility of this place being sanctified and taken up into a new way, not in a certain date in 2012 or whenever it is the next end of the world is going to happen, but a radical and irrevocable changing moment here, which shows us the possibility of the, uh, of the kingdom of God among and between and within us and then say, okay, now that moment is gone. What do we need to now do in our own chronological time to figure out how to make this world and enter into this other you know, way that God has already seen fit that we might name as, as the kingdom or the reign of God? And so the gospel is that story. How do we participate in, you know, on earth as it is in heaven, basically, right? Mm-hmm. I love that. When people ask me about the gospel, I, I start and sometimes even just end with like creation I was just like, the gospel is that like the God of the universe loves you and, and like has meaning for us. Like that's, that to me is always the first place to start, you know, like the particulars of Jesus and, and, you know, depending on your view of justification and all that stuff, all that to me is downstream. It's like, it could be that all of this is meaningless. It, the gospel is that it's not meaningless, you know, like start there mm-hmm. I don't know that that's not a, actually a, a complete description of the gospel in my mind, but it seems to resonate with what you were kind of saying. Yeah. And, and for me, the reason I use the word story, Dan, is because I think it's not sufficient to know that something is not meaningless. We need to practice the activity of telling the story totally. of our hope. I certainly right? don't know that it's not meaningless. <laughs> right. And so many what times we do I instead, feel like it's quite meaningless. Yeah. Yes. And so instead we tell the story so that those yeah. days when we're not sure we feel in our bones that it's not meaningless, we right. still have the story and the reminder of what has happened and been traced in the history of humankind so yeah. far. That's great. Well, you got me excited for the kind of pastoral places that we're going to end up, but let's lay some intellectual groundwork here. Uh, because I think that there's an interesting history of theopoetics and where it comes in that really resonates with a moment like we're in right now, especially at the end of the Trump presidency uh, and the kind of disillusionment there many of us are feeling, which we'll, we'll tie back in eventually. But let's start with sort of the emergence of, of theopoetics. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I basically understand it as it wouldn't have been possible to come about without this broad secularization of Western society, where, you know, I talked about this with Tony Jones in the fall about Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age, and how basically the question he's trying to answer is, how did it go from in 1500, you'd be weird if you thought God wasn't in control of everything, and that the the meta-narrative of 
the Judeo-Christian tradition was the literal truth to 2000, where you're kind of weird if you do think that in many educated circles. And he's trying to explain that shift, but that shift has happened. And so most educated Westerners have a hard time just saying, yep, this right here in Genesis, this is the straightforward tale of how the world came to be. And, you know, we have all these problematizations of it. We've got scholar, we have critical scholarship, we have science, you know, whatever. That this basically is a precondition for even needing something like theopoetics. Am I right about that or am I mistaken about that? Both, depending on the context. <laughs> okay. Uh, academically speaking, that's accurate. Okay. In the sense that in terms of writing books and writing journal articles and teaching junk at seminary and all those kinds of things, that's the thing that gave rise to it. I want to recognize that that, that academic reality has been, is, and always will be the minority of thinking about the church. Hmm. Most thinking about the church happens over kitchen tables, in back rooms, in bars, and in the like the side coffee room of our sanctuaries. And by the way, on the street corners where two people are talking to each other about why it is that God isn't uh, helping them avoid that 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 next dose. Okay, right. so or that cancer diagnosis or whatever. Right. So yeah. the re the other answer to your question is absolutely not. Is it a precondition? Because you know what? Folks of color have been talking about this the whole damn time that the gospel has been trying to be spread and shoved down their throats. Hmm. Why? Because they've been told that that book says one thing, which is anathema to their soul, spirit and body. So you already from that point in time begin to say, you say the book says this, my body knows this is not right. I question it. I question it. I question it. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And by the way, also true for queer folk, also true for women, also true for, right. also true for, also true for. So why is it the academy needs that secular problem? Because the academy has been largely dominated by men and white men and straight men. Well, right? even, so yeah, this, even going critique, back, yeah. even going to the Middle Ages, let's say like Middle Ages Europe, right? Where everybody is basically white, for instance, uh, or what they're, they're European, they don't, right. whiteness as we know it in yes. the States right. they're doesn't European. exist yet. They're European. Yeah. Even in that context, you know, we think about, well, here's what Anselm was dealing with and here's what Aquinas was dealing with. And I mean, these, these guys represent, you know, 1% of the population, you know, so it, it's even when we talk about like, you know, when Charles Taylor says like, how could you go from in 1500 believing this to in 2000 believing this? Charles Taylor is still kind of only talking about the the hyper-educated elite. And exactly. that, I actually find that quite interesting. I am a hyper-educated elite myself. That's mm -hmm. probably why I find it interesting. But I also always find it interesting and resonant with me to talk about religion and spirituality on the ground. That is a part of me autobiographically, I think, that comes from my kind of punk rock teenage roots. That mm -hmm. I'm never content to leave it at academic discussion between educated elites, even though that's where my brain likes to go. And so when I'm talking about prayer, I, I always want to talk about, you know, the Thai farmer and their shrine worrying about the harvest or the Midwestern evangelical with the cancer diagnosis who wonders if prayer could maybe affect the outcome of his diagnosis, you know, or of the, his prognosis, right? And so I love that you're going there and kind of dethroning the academy a little bit here. And yeah, that's one that's one way of doing it is to talk about 
contextual work uh, to talk about identity politics, you know, race, gender, sexuality, et cetera. But education is also, even before some of that comes in, education is doing a lot of that work uh, for us. Yeah. And, and so is the religion itself. So, for example, uh, I've had conversations with folks who are part of the Orthodox traditions in the East who go, yeah, this isn't really a thing we talk about because we never had the problem that the Western church had with this. So, like, they might mm-hmm. say, for example, like, this has always been our approach to it. Right. So, so what we're really talking about is a educated Western, largely Protestant problem. Yeah. So, I mean, even just the word poetics to pick up on that a little bit, Anybody who's spent time in a urban Catholic cathedral for a mass service or even just walked around one while they're on vacation somewhere can already notice that there is an aesthetic difference between what's going on in that tradition, which also would include the Orthodox tradition if you find yourself in like Eastern Europe or something where those cathedrals are more common. I haven't really ventured out there myself, so my experience is with Catholic cathedrals. But already you're starting to notice Oh, there's a difference of approach here, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the reason I, I am obnoxious about this, like, you know, what's really the cause of it, it's just to, it's just to point out, you know, I, I have been kind of encouraged to think more, think less universally about even my own problems. They're like, no, no, these are your problems. <laughs> these are your problems, you know, uh, Protestant. Uh, these are your problems, academic. Um, you know, for example, you know, I, uh, a colleague of mine once did a review of a of a of a book that was kind of engaging with the the, the preaching task and theopoetics. And he's a incredible um, African American scholar of homiletics. Uh, that was a colleague of mine at uh, Boston University School of Theology, and um, he <laughs> he he did a really incredible review. And he said, "Oh, this book is really engaging with some of these theopoetic concepts. It's very interesting." And then he has this line, and and I, I won't do it verbatim because I don't recall it. But essentially, he's like, "I'm really glad that these folks are picking up on this." Stuff. I just would like to note, black churches just do this all the time, and we don't have a word for it. <laughs> right, right. And and, I, and that was a day I was like, oh, right. Like, we're making a big deal out of this thing because it has largely been stripped out of our culture. And what do I mean by our? By the academy, by certain strains of Western Protestantism, where we, we don't want to have as much attention paid to the body, to intuition, to feelings. And as a result of that, even among kind of big L liberals, it's been hard for people to pay attention to the ways in which bodies have mattered, that gender has mattered, that that race has mattered, because we have eliminated fleshy stuff and and tried to just leave ourselves with thinking, not recognizing that thinking itself has been shaped by the, the bodies we are. Right. Okay. So th- I think we, we've done enough throat clearing or maybe even too much. We need to get into some sort of a definition here before we go further. So define theopoetics for us, first of all. So uh, when I talk about theopoetics, I say that there's kind of four chunks to it. So first of what it is, is an emphasis uh, or a style and a, and a positive concern for the, the intersection of uh, religious reflection and spirituality with the imagination and aesthetics, and you could say, and the arts, or, you know, you don't have to, aesthetics can count for that. So that's the first part. An emphasis or style with this intersection of creative and and spiritual practice. Second, that takes shape so that it grows in community, so that it's a communal reflective practice. So it's that intersection, and then that intersection done communally. Three, 
that leads to material change, either because of the church practices you do or the service that happens out in the street or the way that you organize your sanctuary, right? It's not simply thinking, it's thinking and acting. If you want to be like technical, schmechnical, you can call that like praxis, right? It changes practice because of theory. Yeah. And lastly, then kind of of the above, it affirms the importance of embodiment. Right. So it's a style emphasis, concern for that intersection done in a communal way that focuses on material change and affirms the importance of embodiment. Okay, that's great. Another way, though, to kind of get our minds around this is to contrast it. So is the best thing to contrast it with is like systematic theology or something like that, where uh, what would be the what's sort of the flip side of theopoetics? What is the what is the most contrast? So. The the problem with doing that move that you just wanted to make, which is like contrasting it with systematics, is there are some systematicians that do work theopoetically and don't call it theopoetics. Right. Right. It's not it's not a versus scenario. Like some folks will try to do the like theology and the logy part of theology is logic, logos really, but whatever. You know, theologic versus theopoetry. And like I'm not particularly down with that. Yeah. I think that theopoetics kind of, like I said earlier, haunts or is a, a, a kind of lives within or is in dialogue with those things. So it isn't an either or scenario. So, so therefore, I can't tell you a project or uh, a particular thing that is opposed to theopoetics. What I would say is the pattern of behavior that theopoetics could be best contrasted with is people who think that kind of thoughts are divorced from material history. Okay, so what about, could we say like Descartes and his meditations of like, look, here's my goal. I'm going to take rational principles that are as abstract as I can can get them to be, and I'm going to build an entire castle out of completely unembodied, rational, unimpeachable arguments that are locked in stone. Would yeah. that be the opposite of theopoetics? I think that's fair. I think that's okay. fair. Although I think if you start thinking about like Cartesian, like the Cartesian school of thought more broadly, it gets problematic. Because I'm not sure then does people that. start to broaden yeah, right, go, exactly. well, so, but, actually, but if you, you want know, to do yeah. that thing, that's a per, that's a fairly good, like that conception of the way Descartes dealt with that, at least at that point in time, by the end of, well, whatever, we don't need to get into it. But yeah, yes, yeah. That's, that's a fairly good counterpoint. Yeah. How about, uh, how about a more um, enfleshed example then here as well? something that I think a lot of listeners have grown up with and that I myself was drawn to in some of my younger years, which is any time that a pastor or religious thinker or leader or whatever says to someone who's having doubts or who is having some you know uncomfortable feelings about something, your feelings aren't what matters. What matters is rationally assenting to the truths of scripture. Yep. And so- Right now, your feelings are at odds with your faith, and you should subsume those because you're just not obeying these principles. Yeah. Can I tell you a quick story? Please. Stories are great. So my flavor of theopoetics is kind of totally indebted to a thinker and a storyteller and a children's book author and a psychoanalyst and one of the fathers of Christian liberation thought, a a Brazilian uh, thinker whose name is Hubem Alves. Uh, Rubem is what it looks like in English. And he, he tells this story of how he had been involved in the kind of early conversations around what eventually get called liberation thought um, from, from the Latin American context. And how 
you know, Marxists were calling for a revolution and he himself was a trained kind of Marxist who wanted the next thing and the new revolution and the new society. And he said, you know, part of what the, 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 the Marxists in those days in the 50s and 60s were kind of railing against was a kind of discontent with the, the government and the church who was saying, like, you know, it'll be fine because in heaven you'll get what you want. Right. Right. And he said, you know, one day he he was excited about this Marxist movement because we were really dealing with the things they were really going to be. We're really going to ask for change. And, you know, things were violent for a period in time for decades in, in Brazil and in Chile and in lots of places. And he remembers a conversation where um, he was kind of wi witnessing a conversation between a mother who had lost her son, who had been disappeared, uh, who was crying and kind of talking to uh, a religious person who was kind of revolutionary in, the, in, the, in a Marxist sense. And he said to her, the, the, this revolutionary, you know, these are exactly the kinds of things that won't happen after the revolution. Hmm. And I always said to himself, like, this is the same problem. Yeah. Don't worry later. It'll be OK in later heaven. It'll be OK. Right. Is the same problem as don't worry after the revolution, everything will be fine. And he said, what's called for is an embrace of this mother and I see your tears. So I think whenever right. we find ourselves in th that world where we're, 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 we're using abstraction to, to legitimate, to pacify or to, 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 to kind of calm anxieties about injustice or about discontent is a place where my warning flags go up. And I think largely those warning flags go up because of the kind of practices and thinking and patterns of noticing that come along with some of this literature and the people who are in conversation around it. That's really interesting. It makes me think of something that is coming up a lot these days for people and in conversations that people have with me because of our just very high level of, of sociopolitical polarization that like there are, of course, I mean, we, we have seen it in full color, the, the problems with sort of far right authoritarianism and, you know, all of that. But there is also a kind of utopianism that can be on the far left that there's a difference between advocacy, which is very much real world and, you know, advocates often are doing social work day to day. They are like, you know, literally appearing in court on behalf of people in the current system as it is now while they advocate for systemic change. But then there's another kind of like mostly very online activism that's really just like what we really need is just smash everything and have a new perfect system and that mm -hmm. will solve everything. And a lot of those people are not doing anything in their day to day life to yeah. actually help uh, people who are marginalized they think that the work that they need to do is like tweeting these things out and then they're good. Mm -hmm. And that actually reminds me of a kind of a fundamentalism. It's a similar mindset as someone who says, well, when we die, we'll go to heaven and we'll be in the 144,000 and we'll be good and that'll solve it then. And neither of those are, are satisfying to me. And I, I don't want to I don't want to put my thumb on the scale too much for political centrism and moderateness because because I know that that's my own bias. Mm -hmm. um, and some of that and, and a lot of my psychological training is actually is, is, I don't know, confirming that bias in me, maybe. But there is something about 
moderateness and centrism when it is when it is not self-satisfied and comfortable that is about sitting with the complexity of issues mm-hmm. and like taking the time to let the opposing viewpoints hash things out and think about compromises and it strikes me that there is some relationship there and I, again I don't want to I'm not trying to put halos behind myself and other centrists or anything like that but that is part of the that's part of the motivation for me is is mm-hmm. getting away from these easy answers to actually make change and to to yeah. do that difficult real politic work of like getting shit passed you know mm-hmm. because it is complex that's really interesting i mean so uh, on the one hand you know i'm i'm highly uh, averse to the you know there's good people on both sides argument and the 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 kind of equivalency of the left and the right as the same thing just kind of moving around they're they're never equivalent right of course. Yep. they always yeah what what i would say and i'm almost certainly to the left of you politically because i'm to the left of a lot of folks is my critique which i think is most resonant with the thing that you just said uh, the the best way I know to name it actually comes um, from the work of um, Paulo Freire, who's another Brazilian thinker. He's a educational theorist who was v- very Christian, and again, who, whose ideas were at the core of what became liberation theology. In fact, Gustavo Gutierrez, who who wrote kind of the a theology the of book liberation. that people point to, a theology yeah. of liberation. You know, side note. Alves actually wrote the first liberation theology text two years before that, but no one knows that because his editor said liberation isn't in vogue and they renamed it a theology of hope, oh, um, bummer. which is a bummer, right? Yeah. Um, anyway, Man, publishers um, and editors just always getting in the way of creative. Getting you know? in the way, right? So, so, so um, Freire, uh, you know, he has this line where he says, and it gets picked up in Gutierrez, but um, what Freire says is any denunciation of the current order that does not simultaneously announce that which is to come interesting is hollow and any enunciation of of the right ordering of things that does not simultaneously denounce things that are obstacle to the ways they will be is hollow yeah our work must be about removing obstacles and building what is to come we have to do both of those and we have to do those yoked together. And I don't mean like literally in the same minute you have to do both. But if your work, if your moment, if your movement isn't simultaneously yoked to both the tearing down and the building up, you know, there there is a problem. And that is true across the board. And I think of it, you know, as a the, the point of utopia in that regard is recognizing that that word utopia kind of what it really means is no place. Hmm. That that's what that word means. It, it isn't real, right? The whole point of it is it should pull us. Um, you know, the process it's theologians, right? process thinkers say it. It might be a lure, right? right? But what what I you know what I would say, kind of harkening back to the original conversation you and I were having, is. What is the hope of the gospel? That some other new thing is possible, that God is already making a new way, right? So that that what that we want to be doing is be is the utopian vision is not a thing that exists. If someone points to a place and says, this is utopia, they're wrong. What utopia does, what the human imagination is, is the capacity for us to be pulled forth into the imagination of a new world to kind of co-create with God the, the human conditions necessary 
necessary to enter into the to the kingdom or the reign of the reign of heaven on earth as if it were in heaven. And to do that, we must be able to conceive of something that isn't now. And so a, a utopia is like a not here. But what that means is we have to imagine ourselves towards this and then do the work, right? And that's the sticking point, right? And then do the work in the incremental ways to figure out how we get from here to there. You know, my tradition, uh, the Religious Society of Friends, has this phrase, what we, we call gospel order. And gospel order is this kind of wacky uh, time thing. Gospel order is both... Uh, God's intent for the right relationship between uh, all of created order and God, right? So you can kind of think end times, you know, eschaton, yeah. you know, the, the the greatest hope for the world kind of thing, and all the steps between now and there. So gospel order is both the end state and the word we use to describe all the ways and all the little micro steps between now and the end state, because mm. all of those little micro steps are possible fractures of that end hope entering into the present. See, it's so funny. I I love all that talk. And I like if I, there's a way that I could edit what you just said if I if I did it right to be an argument for political moderation where it's like, you know, it, you you brought up the both sides thing. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but I'll just say like you can reject the way that Trump used both sides, which is like some of the white nationalists in Charlottesville were very fine people. That's false. They are not very fine people. Uh, zero of them were. But on both sides of specific issues like charter schools or corn subsidies or, you know, carbon capture technology or, you know, come up with 1000 possible solutions to problems we have. You know, sti larger stimulus checks, infrastructure projects. There are good people on both sides of all of those issues. So I want to I, I want to push back on that, Dan, which is to say, I don't know if I'm comfortable saying, you know, zero of those people who are in Charlottesville are good people. What is the case is that day what they did was evil. Oh, sure. Right? This well, is, that's this fine. Is, okay. This is me demonolithicizing. So part yes. of what happens is some of those people may do good and caring things in yeah. other times in their life, right? Totally. We know yeah. that that's true about what happened at the Capitol riots recently, right? Some of those folks are incredible don donors of their time and volunteers, and they, quote, do good things in the world. Yeah. The issue isn't, like, have you done enough good to make up for the like wild and wackadoo stuff you're doing? The problem is we are incapacitated and unable to call shots as we see them and just like, this is bad and this is wrong. You can say that a thing is a bad a bad and wrong thing and not de devalue the, the lives of the people involved in that. And, and I think that that's a really important thing is that we need to be able to say when we see like heinousness happening in the world, like this is heinous, and then also figure out a way to say like, why are you doing this heinous stuff? Someone yes. who also like takes care of puppies or, you know, yes. whatever. I've been thinking about this a lot in relation to my training as a psychologist, which is like, I have wanted to say, and I have said out loud and to friends many times over the last five years, like this generation of evangelicals or these people or the right or whatever have gone crazy, have lost their minds. Anytime I say that, I'm actually negating what I'm learning right now. Like behavior in principle can be somewhat explained. It's not that a bunch of people lost their minds at the same time. It's that I don't know what the antecedents are for their behavior. You know, like that's, that's, that's the answer. And that it's easier for me 
And my sort of uh, anxiety and whatever, my schadenfreude about it is easier for me to say a whole generation lost their minds than it is to, and, and maybe it's not a good use of my time, but they didn't. It's not true that everybody lost their minds. It's like, I just don't understand the causes. And those yeah. are, and that's a lot harder to admit. And maybe I don't want to understand the causes. And actually, maybe I shouldn't under, you know, that, that's all that is more accurate than saying they lost their minds. Yeah. And I don't know what your kind of mental health training background is, but I know in my own kind of organizational consulting and scholarship work, I've been very influenced by what's called Bowen Family Systems Theory, which is a kind of family you know, therapy modality. Um, and, and one of the things that B Bowen F Family Systems says is that whenever you have a system. One of the things that you want to think about is that the presenting problem didn't emerge from nowhere. Kind of like you were saying, like it didn't mm -hmm. just like show up out of nowhere. It's a maladaptation that might have worked for a time right. to, 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 to address some problem. And so then the question is to ask larger, larger patterns within that system about what gave rise to the conditions that allowed for such and such. Yeah, 100%. If you've heard enough of these ads for the Patreon, you've heard me say a lot of times, patrons get at least two exclusive episodes per month. Well, this is one of those three episode months. We've gotten the conversation with Robin Veldman about evangelicalism and climate skepticism. We got another response episode with Tony Jones and I to the Mars Hill podcast and a third episode, which was a conversation with uh, Josh Carlos. He is a anonymous Christian comedian, meme maker, humorist. Uh, so if you want to join the Patreon community, it's a great month to do it. You got those three episodes to check out, plus all the previous patron exclusive episodes. And if you'd like an episode of this show roughly once per week, becoming a patron is the way to do it because the main feed is now every other week. Patrons also get access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. It's five bucks a month and there is a sliding scale. It's at patreon.com slash Dan That link is also in the show notes. And that's all I got to say. Back to my conversation with Khaled. So let's talk about poetry a little bit, because poetry is obviously at the heart of theopoetics and words are creative acts. This is in, you know, Genesis one and two, right? Like those early Hebrew poets have it as God speaking the world into existence. I found this really cool quote from a blog post about theopoetics, which I'll link in the show notes, quote, more religious writers and spiritual intellectuals are discovering that the creator God of Genesis is not a moralist, but a poet and a potter. God with a creative word spoke the universe into existence and fashioned and formed humanity out of the clay of the earth, end quote. I'd just like to hear you kind of respond to that idea. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really interesting. The some of the early writing about theopoetics in the academic kind of vein is really talked about by a guy named Amos Wilder. He's kind of his claim to fame is as a you know poet and a Bible scholar. He taught it in Harvard, but he uses the word creatureliness. Hmm. Um, and I think in a lot of Christian circles, that word would be associated with like bad. Yes. Kind of kind of a Gnostic thing of like our our souls are good. Our bodies are bad. Which right, has exactly. deep resonances, by the way, with purity culture, which we can just leave to the side. Yeah. So Wilder writes about creatureliness, 
is I think related to this potteredness, right? I mean, and I think that makes me immediately think about being clay footed, right? That like as as fallible. I forget where that scripture is from, but like, you know, we are fallible and like we, we trip our own, on our own stuff, right? It kind of the sinful nature of, of folks when we engage in that kind of work, especially when we're dealing with systemic evil. But the part that I've always been fascinated by with Wilder is that his emphasis on creatureliness, and, and, and I would even say in this, in terms of the quote that you just said, the potterliness happened because he came back from the Great War, World War One, And when he came back, his, he was like, wait, what are we doing exactly? Yeah. Like, what are we talking about? And and of course, you know, we don't have these diagnoses and we don't have the details. But, you know, part of my own scholarship has to do with with trauma and moral injury and, and, and what happens in the wake of, of those things. Will you define moral injury really quick? Because people don't always know what that term means. Yeah. So um, moral injury is um, kind of a, a neighboring idea to um, what gets called as you know PTSD, which is the kind of technical um, definition. And, and PTSD has biophysical or neurological components, which is right. like something has happened in the brain and we have chemical responses and it's measurable. And, and to some degree, it's treatable sometimes by pharmacological responses, sometimes in uh, talk therapy. You know, there's other ways to kind of process yeah. PTSD. Moral injury says, actually, there is a thing that can irreparably, uh, maybe not irreparably, but can significantly alter a person's sense of like what is good and what is right in the world that might not actually rise to the level of trauma or neurological imprinting. And one of the kind of examples that's used to talk about moral injury quite often is in the military context, you get a bunch of um, folks who are on patrol and they say, hey, by the way, there's a bomb in that house. Go in there and take care of it. And you knock open the door and it's a front. There's a family in there and they're trying to like hide the bomb making scenarios by just quote, just being a family. But in the back room is where the bomb making facilities happen. So they kind of knock everyone down, unlock the back door. And it turns out actually it isn't a front. It is just a family. There's no bombs. So let's say there's five people in that little group who just went in there. Four of them are like, ah, we missed the target. The fifth one might have this moment where he's like, whoa, we were so close to killing some of those people. Yeah. What just happened? Now, there's no trauma, right? They didn't die. There wasn't a death. There wasn't an explosion. There was no kind of hormonal flush in the serotonin and dopamine and all the things that happen in the brain when we get exposed to that kind of wildness, which kind of triggers the kind of de definition of PTSD or acute trauma. But he may begin to say, like, that could have gone squirrely, right? Yeah. I trusted the people who gave me my orders because the military has told me this is the case. This is the intelligence. And, and what we've learned over time in the moral injury literature is about what actually happens to people's ability to understand what goodness is, what authority is, and about the right ordering of society when, when the people they trust, who are supposed to be arbiters of good, turn out not to be trustworthy. Or I mean, at least are sometimes not trustworthy. Yeah. I mean, this is this is a, one of the ways that we could uh, tie this conversation to the aftermath of the wedding between Trump and evangelicals. So many children of those baby boomers, let's say, for example, are like, wait, you know, <laughs> I have not, not just uh, a few years of military training and you know, or maybe a, a year of it, and now my CO is telling me something, but I've got like 18 years 
under your roof of moral training. And now you're saying what and doing what? Uh, moral injury sounds like a pretty good term for that. Yes. So one of the ways that we can kind of I'm kind of a odd duck in the sense that, you know, I, I'm, all, I'm all over the place in terms of like where my work is. So I'm a statistics guy. I'm a kind of a, a number cruncher math man in addition to all my other nuttiness. So uh, about one half of one percent of the United States served in the military. Right now, the the numbers are suggesting that about 20% of the people who stormed the Capitol were in the military. Right. Now, I am not someone who says the military is bad and the not military is good. I just want to point out that the kinds of work that happens when you're in the military, the necessity to believe your superiors, and, and actually, I mean that word literally. For the military to do what the military needs to do- They have that, to have that. That, that, yes. has, that has that, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. Like, that's right. just- functionally the yep. way the military works now, like how it has to be. So something happens to your inward, what we say in my tradition, the Quakerism is your inward landscape is shifted. Yeah. You have to ship it because otherwise you, you aren't able to comply with your orders, which is ne necessary, right? right? But then we don't ever do the work of reshifting it back to civilian life. Hmm? So what what is part and partial to that is that you have people, and whether it's the military or whether it's evangelicalism or whatever it is, if, if something has been shifted in your inward landscape to allow you to do a thing that is hard for you to do, right, then real inward work, pastoral work, therapeutic work, mental health counseling, I mean, you can name the list, has to be done to re-landscape the inward landscape so that you can reorient towards what good is. How you conceive of authority? Uh, I totally agree with you, and actually, this is one of one of my unpopular takes. I agree with Jim Wellman from University of Washington, my recent guest, talking about the surprising benefit of megachurches. Is that megachurches are middle class worshiping communities for people like, for instance, former military vets mm -hmm. to come have some spiritual formation, some moral formation, mm -hmm. not merely to, to make them ethical people, as you said earlier, like, you know, if Christianity is just ethics, then what's the point? But to have an embodied experience and, and embodiment is something that, you know, as a basically mainline Protestant myself, theologically, mega churches do a lot better job of embodiment than most of the churches yes. that I find myself going to, which are mm -hmm. frozen chosen style, you know, we're just yep. kind of we're just kind of standing there and singing maybe and looking yep. at our hymn book. And so this is a real loss if church church attendance goes down among these populations, because where will they get that formation? Yeah, they're going to get mean, it somewhere. Like, yeah, right. I feel like I need to name check my uh, friend and colleague, Dr. Zachary Moon, who um, is an incredible inspiration for me. Um former Marine chaplain and, and service member who has written significantly about trauma and moral injury and specifically what does it mean to welcome home veterans mm. and saying, hey, liberal churches, you, you know, you got your eyebrows all twisted up around the problem of the military industrial complex. But you know who it's also hurting? The people who are in the service, yeah. right? the poverty draft and the people who are in, in, enrolling and who are dying or losing 100%. limbs. And you know what happens when they come home? You sanctimoniously look down your nose at them and say, look, oh, you shouldn't have been in the military in the first place. So what happens to these people? Yeah. 
right? So what does it mean for us as the church, right? To do that work that God is always calling us into, to say there's another way here to radically reconceive of this thing as a problem, say, well, we do have the military currently. There are individuals in the military who aren't what you think they are, monolith, and we need to care for them. Just as we saw modeled in the gospels that Jesus met people where they are, what does it mean for us to abandon our large category, categorical thinking about what it is we think we're supposed to do and the position we're supposed to have and the moral purity we're supposed to be on. Moral purity, by the way, is the name of my high horse. Um, And (laughs) then do the work of of needing together back broken lives by means of which I'll also be kind of binding myself more closely to the to the hope that God has for the world. But so this this actually brings us back to poet and potter, right? Mm -hmm. These like language and creation. Uh, creative acts, arts. So this might be a nice way to wrap up that little rabbit trail on moral injury and get back to your kind of response to this idea that that uh, what we see in the text is actually a God, uh, not a moralist, not sanctimonious. You know, we, we're, the enfleshment of Jesus and hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors is the opposite of sanctimony. And the idea that, that you know, this is actually one of my pet peeves around sort of, Puritanism of any kind, but especially the Puritanism of like the Eucharist table that like, because in some way God can't be around sin. I'm just like, I don't know which gospels you're reading. If you think that God can't be around sin, that's like literally God's whole thing is to be around sin. So anyway, that's just, let me, I'm just trying to kickstart you back into that line of thinking here. Yeah. So, you know, the thing that's important to recognize if we're going to talk about, you know, theopoetics or or poetics or pottery <laughs> is uh, the recognition that kind of underneath the word poetry is this word in Greek, poesis, and it's the word to make. OK. And in Greek, there's two kinds of like making or or, or doing. One of them is the like the making or doing that is like uh, hey, go make your bed, right? And by that, we don't mean create a bed. <laughs> <laughs> don't create a bed from scratch. Yeah, right. tidy it. What we mean is like do the thing, which is returning your bed to the state that the bed should be in, right? It's it's just it's like hey, act in a bed related pattern, you know, that kind of thing. And then the yeah. other word, poesis, is the word for creation, right? Make as in bring into being something that has not been made before. So. The word, a poem, which we get in English, you know, in the Greek that it comes from is literally just a made thing, which is kind of a wild, like, what is a poem? A poem is a made thing. And so um, God as kind of poet or potter is in the, is in the, you know, at least in our, the way we conceive of God in the, in the Christian tradition and in those stories that we've inherited, um, God is a maker. And if we are made in the image of a maker, then we are made as makers. And so... The role then of of things like the the literary object that is poetry is for me from a theological perspective to help us cultivate the practice of recognizing the human capacity for creative interpretation and storytelling and making that actually we are part of the work that God is doing in the world and how we name God, how we portray God, how we talk about what the kingdom is, how we fill in whatever theological categories that you want to put in there, how we do that work 
shapes how it is that we imagine and think that God is at work in the world, what we're supposed to be doing, what a good person is. That stuff isn't fixed in stone when we're born. It's not fixed in a society when a society writes laws. It's constantly in flux because it is made. Those things are made things and how we think about them and interpret them, you know, shapes what it is we think we're doing. And so when we talk about things like the internal landscape or whatever it is, the reason I so highly emphasize the importance of creativity and imagination and the arts is because those are places where people are practicing making. And I think that that making practice is, if not inherent, really close to being tied into part of what it means to be a person. Yeah, that's beautiful. I want to clarify one thing or or see if you think that this works. So one thing that I personally believe is that there is a moral truth. There is sort of like an ultimate way to be a human that is on earth as it is in heaven, that that exists, but not that I necessarily have, but I don't have easy access to all the details of what it is. Perhaps if I had Christ right next to me, and if I had a completely unclouded way of of uh, absorbing what Jesus was like, then maybe I would know. But of course, I don't have either of those things. Yeah. But that's not to say, so so if that's the case, like, and this is how process people talk about the lure of God. It's not like, as I understand it, God's sort of values are not in flux. It's not like one day God wants X and the next day God wants the opposite of X. Yep. That's not how it works. But our situatedness and all the things getting in the way of our ability, you know, some of which is baked into the cake of being creatures and some yep. of which is our own shit, our society's shit, whatever, mm-hmm. the way we've been harmed. Keep, you know, that's how why we see through a glass darkly for all these reasons. But yep. theoretically, there's something to see through a glass, not darkly. We yep. just don't ever get there. So can can someone agree with what you just said, that these the creation of these steps are on the way to a real thing that is fixed, that's just hard to know. Does that work? I mean, I don't know. If it works for you, it works for you. I don't care. Uh, do you think okay, Do you think that there is like, there is a state, there is kind of a a thing that God is, is pulling us toward? Fixed is the wrong word because fixed implies temporality stuff that I don't necessarily Yeah, that's the mean. problem. Yeah, so, so Value-wise, it, it, it's fixed, I guess. I would disagree with that too. Because it's infinite. It's infinitely good. That Mm. grace is so profound. We can't conceive of it in time. We can't conceive of it in space, right? God's ways are higher than our ways. So there's... it, it permeates this world, Dan. It, it's not fixed. That suggests there's a thing we're moving towards. It's the underpinning of what is. God's grace is so overwhelming and undergirding and leading. It, I have a hard time saying it's fixed in any sense of the word. Here's here's the way I think about it. And, and you might want to edit this whole thing out because it's super visual, but it also could be really cool depending on how nerdy your nerds are. So in math, there's this thing called an asymptote. And it's really easy to click a link in your show notes to an asymptote. It's a pretty simple diagram. It's a curvy line that uh, moves off infinitely at the distance. And what we say in math is asymptotes uh, cross a certain point, and the point that they cross it at is infinity. So, for example, if I have a curve that crosses three at infinity, we know that at the quote-unquote point 
three infinity, there's an intersection. Whatever mm-hmm. the, that line is crosses the line at infinity. And we can talk about it like that. This curve is an asymptote. What is it asymptotic towards? Well, at infinity, it hits three. Yeah. And I can say that to you. It's sensible to you and it never happens. Yeah. Because there's no such thing as infinity. Right. So that's the way that I think about what gospel order is, which is the way we talk about it in my tradition. Yeah. Yes, there is such a thing. But part of the reason I talk about utopia, for example, is there's no such thing. It's infinitely beyond our grasp. And if Jesus had lived, he would have become more good, even though he was already as good as a person has ever been and ever could be. He Mm. would still nonetheless have done more. Yeah. It's so interesting. Like to make it personal, like I never, I don't actually want to go to a perfected heaven. What I want is like more life. Like when I, if I'm honest with myself, I would like to continue to live. I would love a, a a heavens on earth, so to speak, where nobody is being interred, <laughs> where no where uh, no children are getting cancer. Like there are things that I would I would want different, but where all those people are still, in some sense, we age because you you experience different things at different points in your life. Like I I don't actually want a steady state static heaven. That does not sound interesting at all. Now, maybe it will actually, maybe that is true and it will be interesting because of something I can't imagine right now. Yeah, right. And that's fine. But yep. as far as I can conceive of it, I want like more of this, but but with less evil and suffering in the world. Yeah. But maybe not no pain and maybe not no tension because yep. a lot of the beauty of life comes in res- the resolving of tension. That's how music works. That's how hunger and feasting works. Yep. Uh, you you know, a drink, a glass of water is not good unless you're thirsty, you know, yep. so that that's really interesting. It's 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 fun to dig into the psychology of that, mm-hmm. because it might be true that we want to say theologically that there's some perfect state. But if we're honest with ourselves, that's not actually what we can't understand wanting that. Yeah. Right? And so oh, that's man. its own thing. Word. So two things. One is uh, uh, I'm right with you. And I think it's important for people to like know this about me is like I also am not willing to argue against the possibility of the perfected state. I don't know. I'm agnostic around that sure. kind of stuff. I'm not in the business of arguing for or against stuff like that. It's just like not my jam. But uh, it's not where I'm at. That, and I am clear to say that. And here's the other thing I want to loop back to, because exactly what you said is the reason why I talk about poesis. I talk about poetry. I talk about the arts. The steady state version of heaven connects to that Greek, the other word for Greek doing, which is proso, right? Poeo and proso. Proso is this doing that has standard practice, right? Make your bed. Bring your bed back to the state a bed is supposed to be in, right? Make your bed. So if heaven is made that way, then there is a way that heaven is made. If instead make your bed means come up with bedness, then what it means to be in the perfected state of heaven is this infinite kind of participation with God's energy in the world, right? That's how the Orthodox talk about it, um, kind of engaging with the, the the God's action in the world. And there's, you know, text in Peter and places where it's like what, what we are is kind of first I um, made man and then man engages in the, in the um, doing of me in the world, right? What if what the inbreaking of heaven is, is a greater drawing nearer to that power and grace and goodness so that we're constantly making our 
ourselves by means of engagement with God in, in the world. And and that's how that's how I think about it. And, you know, in this is before postmodernism. It's before the kind of move. But, you know, my tradition has just said, look, we don't know about the second coming stuff. We don't know about kind of New Jerusalem, like on a certain day at a certain time. Um, by the time the second generation of my denomination came into being, they were already recognizing like the world didn't end. And so we needed to talk about what did it mean to live um, as if the world was what it meant when the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven happened. Yeah. Not saying it won't happen on a clock date, but that what we need to do now is live in that world now. And there isn't a certain way to do that. We have to keep asking and testing and questioning and, and, and leaning into it. And again, in my tradition, we call that continuing revelation. The, 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 the power of the, the, the gospels and scripture in general continues to be, we say, opened to us over time as we learn what does it mean that science is the case? What does it mean that things that we thought were OK before aren't OK? What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? It doesn't undercut the power of those truths. It means we have to understand how those truths are remaking who we are as people in this in light of the world today. Beautiful. Earlier when you were talking about this, I wrote down a, a thought here and I want to kick it at you. And I, I mean it both theologically, but also I mean it just psychologically, just as a general principle, maybe for the human experience. And I wonder if this is true, that that to the extent that we have something figured out uh, and the bigger that thing that's figured out, the more power this will exert. So God, the universe, my life, when we've got it all locked down, to the extent that we've got it figured out and nailed down, we miss out on the creative process. That basically, why create anything? What we've got here is a solid box of unimpeachable truth and explanation. To make something new would mess with that and would dilute the truth and the purpose and whatever. And so it seems there is a tension between, maybe we call it certainty, you know, maybe we call it something like that and creativity. Yeah, I mean, m maybe one of the things you could, if you push me large enough, like get me to argue about um, <laughs> well, would be this idea that like, you know, the create creativity or novelty or something like that isn't important. I think I would probably want to go to fisticuffs if we do that. because And, and for me, it undoes itself, right? So you breathe, right? And when you breathe, you take in some chemicals and your body, this great, incredible temple that is the place in which spirit dwells, takes those things, says yummy, yummy oxygen in my tummy. It doesn't go in your tummy. That's not how breathing works. But it says yummy, lungs. yummy oxygen yeah. in my lungs. <laughs> yum, yum. Oxygen in my lungs. Yeah. yeah. And then breathes out something that was not there before, Dan. Right. Who you are is a maker. Right. Your life makes. And you know what your life makes? It makes food for trees. Right. Because they need that CO2. And you know what the trees do? They make the stuff that your lungs need. Right. You are a maker. You cannot be without making. Yeah. Right. So I say that, that. So that was just a chemical or a biological commentary. I say that applies to our own subjectivity, which is just like the fancy word for saying self, right? Who we are is a combination of our own internal landscapes that like no one's ever going to really see in, no other people at least are going to see in, and what came before us. We're a combination, an overlapping 3D Venn 
diagram, like, you know, imagine spheres overlapping instead of just circles overlapping, where the history of what came before us and our parents and the social systems and powers and privileges and marginalizations that they were part of are part of who you are and how you are and what you do and what you make. And that infinitely large Venn diagram sphere is what God can call us towards and overlaps with all spaces and all times. So, you know, we are making and we are being made and remade. And, and, and I think about repentance in that regard, right? When we think about the, the fancy word for repent, right? In Greek, metanoia, people have heard this in a bazillion sermons probably, right? It means to turn around, right? But we can't turn around and try a new thing or turn a new leaf or whatever other cliched ways you talk about what it means to repent without first recognizing you want to do a new thing. Right. And that practice, I mean, that's why that's why I care about the arts and spirituality. I mean, to be clear, I like the arts and so like I'm into it, right? I used to own a theater. I'm a poet. Like I just like them because I like them. But theologically, spiritually, pastorally, the reason I'm always banging on that drum is because Artists and the arts and people who are engaged in creative practice recognize that failure and experimentation and making shapes not just the, the making, but who they are. Yeah. I'm feeling so inspired around this idea of creativity as I, as I talk with you. And what I would like to do is I wonder if we can channel some of that passion toward the more prosaic forms of creation obedience, habit, regular prayer practices, taking the Eucharist regularly, service, you know, giving of time and, and money. These things are things that most of us as Christians like recognize we ought to be doing. Uh, some part of us wants to have a better prayer practice or, or meditation practice or whatever. But we, I think that we don't tend to think of that as creative because I think that we think we often think of creativity as spontaneous. Uh -huh. But actually, if you read any book by screenwriters, musicians, visual artists or painters, almost unanimously, poets, novelists, they tell you, actually, you have to show up basically every day at the same time with your keyboard in front of you or your canvas in front of you. And you just have to you have to make it a regular thing. And then the moments of insane inspiration, they come at random times seemingly, but you have to put the work in. There's a real disconnect there. So I'm, yeah. I'm wanting to take this inspiration and like maintain it to get something going that's regular, that's not spontaneous. Yeah. Uh, just can you riff on that a little bit? I, I, yeah, absolutely. So the, the poet Stanley Kunitz, prolific career, you know, one every award a poet can win, Nobel, you know, poet laureate, blah, 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 blah. Um, in his later years, in his kind of mid, I think, 90s, maybe late 90s, you know, was asked by a journalist, like, you know, one of these kind of trite journalist questions, like, oh, so how did you do it? You know, like one of those, like, hey, you're old right. <laughs> questions. Yeah. And Kunitz says, I really love my garden. And the journalist, like, you know, thinking he misunderheard or like yeah, having was like old, an old yeah. man. He said, no, 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 your poetry. And he's like, no, yeah, that's what I mean. If I didn't have something I could dig my hands into that were not the words and lines of my poems, the poems would simply become themselves. And instead, what they become is something I'm not working with, something more than me. Mm. Right. So what does he love more than poetry? 
his garden. And because he dedicates himself to his garden, when he writes his poetry, his poetry becomes something more. When we become navel gazing and we don't really commit ourselves to a thing, our stuff starts to get abstract, it gets hollow, it gets legalistic, it gets wooden. So whatever the thing is, find the thing that is the place that you are grounded. And what will happen is you will become made new. Hmm? Right. So when we engage in prayer practice or we engage in, um, you know, whatever, again, in my tradition, you know, we're, we're kind of unusual in that, like w- the core of our traditional practice is silent prayer. Yeah. So we'll, we'll all gather together in a room and everyone uh, traditionally would kind of be be praying for the, the spirit of God to descend on the body. And whoever is supposed to stand up and preach that day will know because God will give it to them. Well, it's a really intense discipline for a lot of people, especially in the United States, to sit in silence, not knowing what's going to happen. Dan, sometimes weeks go by and no one speaks, right? And in the oldie days, it wasn't just like an hour. You sat until it was you were clear it was time to get up and go. So sometimes you'd sit for two or three hours and then still no one was clear to preach, but everyone was clear it was time to go. And so then you just go and no one preached that day. Now, we don't do that much anymore, although some folks still do in kind of um, the more conservative traditions. But what we do is this intense, from a lot of people's perspective, kind of aesthetic practice of like sitting in silence and waiting. Well, we are being shaped in that practice. And obviously, I'm not talking about yeah. everyone being a Quaker, but for me, those are intimately yoked together. These these these, these patterns, these habits are, are forming how it is we want to be in the world. And it's not like, you know, you come out of worship or you take the communion and then this happens or that happens. But, but over time, you know, what happens is you become attenuated or reoriented in the world because of this. So here's an example I often talk about, and I'll take this from a colleague of mine, um, David Harity. Dave and I have talked a lot. He's a poet. He's like a for real poet. Um, And we love the idea in churches that like everyone's an artist, right? Everyone's a painter. Everyone's a dancer, right? Everyone can paint. You got finger paint. You can paint. Fine. Great. Awesome. Boom. Yes. Gold star. And when you begin to really paint, and by really, we just mean focus on craft, something else happens. Mm -hmm. Something else happens. You don't become a better person than the finger painter, right? You're not more valued in God's eyes. You're not kind of awesomer or holier or whatever gooder words you want to use. But when you turn attention towards craft, you begin to... Something about you changes that's different than just dabbly. So too with spirituality and religion. When you dedicate yourself to a thing, both the thing and you change. And if we're going to be talking about this in the context of kind of Christianity and formation or discipleship, it's not so much that like the kinds of prayer you do changes, but your orientation to it shifts. And I'll say again, for me, in my own tradition, the way we talk about this is the um, an early female minister and founder of the tradition, a woman named Margaret Fell, talks about how the fact that she knew scripture very well her whole life. And then one day she said, it opened to me as if a locked book. Like I had known the words, but I had realized we had been like thieves in the night, stealing away the words without knowing their meaning. Right. Nothing changed. 
Same book, Margaret. (laughs) Same book. But sometimes a thing is opened to us and we realize the same thing that we've been doing, whether, you know, doing a particular prayer or you're doing the steps or you're walking through the big book or you're or you're whatever it is, the same communion you've been taking every day for 20 years. Suddenly you realize there's more there and it opens into a deeper place and you go there and then other things around you shift. And I don't think the arts are the only way to talk about this. Of course not. It is the way I talk about it. And if it's useful to folks, like, you know, crack on. If not, like, I'm not going to fight about it. Well, I, that's what I like about going to the word creativity as opposed to going to the word art or even poetry. Because there are all, you know, you can be a software engineer and have some create something incredible. I, I just launched, as we're taping this, I just launched a new website for my day job, which is commercial music composition. And my buddy coded it from scratch. He built me this like searchable, you know, indexable music library thing. Yeah, That's incredible. Yeah. Like that's a creative act. He looked at the stuff that existed. He was like, none of these are quite what you need. Are you willing to pay a little more to have this better thing? And I said, yeah, do it. Yeah. And he cut me a deal on his extra time. Anyway, the point is just like, yeah. He created it and yeah. it's awesome. And yeah. and he also does visual art. He's a graphic designer, but he didn't do any graphic design. This is a yeah. different kind of creation, right? Yeah. So uh, I'm right with you there. I, I very rarely talk about art, um, which is what people sometimes it weirds people out because like I'm kind of known as this like creativity art, imagine guy. Like, I mean, I am an artist in, in the sense that, you know, I'm a woodworker. I'm an actor. I used to own a theater, used to kind of teach theater. Like that was my my world. I'm a yeah. I'm a hacky poet. But like when I'm talking about this stuff, I, I'm much more talking about this thing. My only caveat, I would say, and, and this is, again, more of like a academic thing than it is like a kind of just like talking to to people thing is creativity has a technical definition in the psychological literature, which mm. is studied and measured and quantifiable. And so I stray away from using creativity. And what I talk about is making. Mm, and again, it goes back. That's that's the English word for poesis, making, right? As opposed to making like it was, right? That's the proso Greek verb. Right. We talk about poeo, right. making it a new thing. So I'm. I talk about imagination, imagining, and making. Those are like that. That's the kind of like base palette for me. And of course, that ends up being poetry and art and you know those other things. But I, I think sometimes the exploration of the thing is a really. It gets us into these in in between places. Um, the poet Carolina Inosa Cisneros is a colleague and a friend, and she talks about the life givingness of in betweenness. Right. Though I think the planta is a mortal word like there's a there's a life between now and the next. And one of the ways that we get to now and the next is this like iterative practice of discovery and making. And we can't be in between if there's no next. Right. So to get a next, you need to make a new thing and make a new thing and make a new thing and make a new thing. And so, sure, we're talking about like writing new iterations of poems and like draft one, draft two, draft three, draft three point five. Like, yes. But also really if from a spirituality perspective, what we're talking about is craft. What we're talking about is repetition. What we're talking about is depth. And and if it's the case that, you know, my foremother in the in my spiritual tradition, Margaret Fell is right, there will be times when suddenly these practices, these prayers, this scripture, this liturgy, this blah, 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 blah will suddenly open. 
And we'll realize, even though we were really down with it yesterday, we were only seeing a shadow of what was possible. Right. And guess what? It'll happen again and again and again. And that's actually a way that I like to think about scripture, which is kind of, it's sort of consonant with the evangelicalism I was brought up with. And then in some ways it's not. Tell and it kind of would depend on who was preaching or talking about it. So I recognize both of the following examples from my childhood. The good example, which is what you're talking about, is like, yeah, every time I open this up again, God shows me something new in it. Mm. And that is a creative process. That's a making process, even if it's just meaning making, right? I'm not mm -hmm. making my own text, but I'm making some new meaning out of it along with my life. I also recognize the kind of more top-down authoritative preaching of the text, which is like, the text only leaves us this option on this topic or whatever, you know, and it is exercising its authority over us. We are to obey. End of story. And it's cool to notice that both of those were always there. And I basically reject the latter. You know, I mean, I think there are a handful of things that the Bible, for instance, is unambiguous about. You know, God exists in some way. Jesus is in some way incarnate of God. You know, there, there's a handful of things we could point to. You should pray, <laughs> you know, th th but there's not a lot. And, and after that, it really, it is, it's more of an art and it is a, it's a continual meaning making. And so that's just interesting to me. There, there's something I can look back at in my own, actually, I'll give one more example because it comes up occasionally. I did a full circle on the term personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I grew up with that phrase being rammed down my throat and I didn't like it. And I thought, what the hell are you guys talking about? Like, to the extent that I understood what it meant, uh, the joke I tell is personal relationship with Jesus Christ meant have your quiet times every day and don't masturbate, <laughs> uh, which was like not that helpful, you know, for a slightly ADD teenage kid. But then I started reading Catholics later in my 20s and 30s. And I, in my 30s, I started contemplative practice around 30. And I kind of came back around to the personal relationship with Jesus Christ language defined in a different way. Once I did that, I recognized that there had been people in my church growing up and maybe some in my evangelical schooling that meant it the way I mean it now. Interesting, but, yeah. But the phrase, but other people meant it in a different way and everyone just used the same catchphrase, right? Yeah. And But some of them were doing the kind of Catholic tinged centering prayer stuff, the contemplative stuff. And I, mm -hmm. I could name four or five of those people off the top of my head right now. And I just wasn't able to see it. And so that's, that's an interesting lens on the creativity is like one type of, of creation is collage or pastiche, right? So I'm actually taking some stuff from my past and repurposing it now in my present. And that's an act of creation. Uh, that's an act of making. Yeah. Um, and it's also that has some psychological healing properties to it as yeah. well to to not only look back with regret at something and to find the ways that it formed you and set you up for success down the road. Yeah. And and part of that kind of making if we're talking about ourselves as spiritual and kind of psychological beings is often unmaking. Right. Right. Unlearning. Yeah. Um and that's hard work. <laughs> it's literally what this podcast is. <laughs> right? It's hard work. Yes. Um, it is. But hopefully and, on the other side of it. And the hope of the gospel, right, is that on the other side of it, there there is joy. There is good tidings. There is healing and balm for the body and, you know, heart and spirit. Well, Khaled, I mean, I think 
this feels like a nice place to end in terms of the 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 vibe and the the fuzzies I'm getting uh, and the wrapping of it up. But <laughs> I'll just give you one one last spot to sort of to, to wrap things up. I'll be linking to your book in the show notes. You can also let us know where else you'd like to be found. Um, but also, I just want to give you like a little pastoral option. Here's your here's your shot at a benediction uh, to to everything we've been talking about. A, a, a word of encouragement. Yeah. Can I say one thing before the benediction? Of course. Thanks for linking out to the book. What I always say now is that if you're going to bother reading that book, I really, really, really want you to read an essay that I recently wrote, which is like, what have I learned since that book was written? What did I miss? I'll go ahead and give you the link to the PDF. I, I, I want to underline the reason it's important is because even someone who sounds the way I sound when I wrote that book missed stuff. Yeah. Right. That's the point of doing this work together. <laughs> and over the years since that book was written, it's like, oh, dummy. Oh, dummy. I can't believe I, I can't believe I can't believe I. And some of that stuff has to do with the ways in which if you're only talking about creativity and imagination and the people who wrote about it and the people who wrote about it are all white dudes. You're missing out on what it means to imagine the full fleshedness of what creativity means, what it means for people to think about this, that, and the other thing when they're coming from different contexts than me, when they're coming from different contexts than just the academy. So right. I begin to breach some of that stuff in an article that I, if people care enough to read the book, I really ask them to read the article because it Great. points out some of my own failings. Yeah. Awesome. So let's, so here's let's my get benediction. that benediction, Pastor. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. At the at the, the church kind of new church life that is part of what is emerging from a um a call that my my wife is doing, a church plant. Um, we're all called hosts <laughs> oh, uh, instead of pastors. And partly that's because of our, our own tradition and wondering, you know, what does it mean? So what I'll share with people comes from that spirit of hosting and hospitality, which is you know, I, I learned from a, a teacher and a colleague and a friend at times, a guy named Richard Carney, who's a who's a philosopher of religion, that the word host in Latin kind of is really weirdly associated with both the word for enemy and guest. Interesting. So hostility and hospitality are like mirror images of one another. And, yeah. and partly that's because if someone knocks on your door, Dan, and you don't know who it is, there's a moment. When you have to say, like, what comes next? Especially, you know, before our modern era of technology and, and doorbell cameras and stuff. I mean, you think about, like, think about Westerns, Western mm -hmm. films, right? It's like this stranger coming up with a gun can kill me if they want to. There's no one around. Mm -hmm. Or they might be bringing something great. Yep. And and it's, it's this kind of sealed environment, right? Yeah. So when Abram, then Abraham, and Sarah, then Sarai welcome the strangers in, they don't know what comes next. Yeah? So there will be times, listeners, when you will stand on the precipice of a thing and you will feel like you want to let something into your life, a new practice, a book, a friend. And I cannot promise you that it will work out the way you want it to. I cannot do that. But... I believe that the God we worship and the God we serve wants us to be called towards the possibility of taking those risks because sometimes a new and glorious and life-giving thing will emerge at a knock on the door that we did not expect. I can't tell you to take the risk every time. 
I can say that I have heard the story of a God who wants us to take it sometimes because on the other side of it is an infinite joy and a grace that is ours and can be even more ours if we take it. So take it when it's right to do so. And you'll know that it's right to do so by sitting in silence for up to two or three hours and listening. (laughs) (laughs) That's the Quaker way. Thank you to Khaled Keith Perry for joining me. Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing this conversation and putting together this episode. He's available for more work. His email is in the show notes. Think about becoming a patron. Get access to all these bonus episodes, including three from the month of September. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys soon for another Mars Hill response episode on the main feed. And then two weeks from today, an excellent conversation with Dr. Lindsay Root Luna on anger and forgiveness, uh, which, as you will hear, uh, we, we just had this conversation recently, but as you'll hear in two weeks, uh, it was a very odd, very odd timing, almost fortuitous timing for me personally, having come out of a particularly, I don't know, anger and forgiveness focused counseling session of my own which was literally right before my conversation uh, with Lindsay. And that took that conversation in some more personal and a little bit more wily directions, uh, which ended up being really enjoyable. I'm excited for you guys to hear that in two weeks on anger and forgiveness. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Thank you guys so much for all of your support week to week. Appreciate it. See you then.